The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. Welcome, guys, and happy Wednesday. Today, we are going to talk about welcoming failure. But first, we're going to start with a quirky tip of the day. Good job. Wow, the pigs sound strong. On cue. (laughs) The quirky tip of the day, you guys, is... We want you to come up with one spot within your dog's life, within your dog's training, everything else, where you can maybe welcome a little bit of failure to help with further learning and further understanding. So this was a Scotty topic. Why'd you come up with this? Where well, I've been, your head at? I've been welcoming failure in my life for a long time. <laughs> Scotty's a pro at welcoming failure. <laughs> no, I find this uh, with my clients, and I was just out to see um, a client yesterday that I went to the house, the dog understands the bed exercise to go to a place and stay on a bed. And when I got there, the dog was barking and the owner, there was husband and wife. So the wife lets me in. The owner is standing beside the dog with a leash, holding the dog onto the bed, which I think is why the dog was barking so much in the first place. But the dog wasn't, um, in my opinion, staying on the bed. He was being restrained on the bed. So in that uh, case, you know, I encourage people to uh, welcome a failure. If the dog's going to get off the bed, let him get off the bed. But the dog isn't learning anything by being held on the bed. Yeah. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. And, you know, that being said, in that context, if you're going to be welcoming that, that type of failure, you're, you're kind of proofing the exercise, assuming that the dog is very you know, fluent in the understanding of that behavior, you don't want the dog to be able to self-reward, meaning run to the person that came in, jump on them, that person pets the dog and all that stuff. Yeah. And it does happen often with even loose leash walking, like people, you know, get concerned, oh, there's a dog coming. They like choke up on their leash. They're creating tension. And of course there's this whole part of opposition reflex, which was probably happening on the bed with the client dog that Scott's talking about and what happens when you're choking up on your leash, concerned about a distraction. But really, we want to focus on pretty much throughout this whole half an hour of different instances where you could maybe introduce failure, like what that would look like. And I want to be very clear when we're like, welcome failure, that isn't so you now need to like shock your dog on a continuous high level to get them back to doing the behavior. This isn't, you know, you, we're not even talking about having to lose use leash pressure. It's whatever you use as a consequence for your dog. Some people use, if the dog pulls, they take three steps back. Whatever, however you're dealing with failure is your own journey and that's fine and dandy and and you can look at that from a lot of different ways. Some people, when the dog gets off the bed, they just calmly pick up the leash and put the dog in the crate. There's different ways that you can handle these things. So don't just automatically assume like, oh, you have to be heavily compulsive in order to deal with this. And I want to float the idea. I'm not going to tie it into humans too much right now, but I may talk about this more at the end of the podcast. A pretty common like phrase out there or meme or whatever you want to say is failure is the path to success. And we just see that over and over and over again within our client dogs, within our own training of dogs, within our own lives sometimes. Like this is a pretty common thing. So when dog trainers and dog owners and dog professionals are just so quickly shying away from, oh, don't let the dog fail, set the dog up for success. Like they they never should be making a mistake. How realistic is that? And really how helpful is that at the end of the day? 
Yeah, and I would, I mean, this is not a situation where you find yourself taking one step forward, three steps back. You're allowing this failure with a plan. Yeah. You know, you're conscious of what's going on. Oh, I see my dog is thinking about getting off the bed. Let, let's let see if he makes the right choice. Yeah. You know, and um, but then what am I going to do if he makes the wrong choice, a choice that we don't want him to be making? So that's what I mean about having a plan so that you can further help the dog to understand more what it is we want from them yeah. rather than they're running around the house and you're throwing your hands up saying, oh, he never stays on the bed. Yeah. And it's just a big party for the dog. Yeah. And which Scott isn't was equating anything. this welcoming failure kind of as errorless learning being the, the, the complete antithesis. opposite of that. Yeah. So why don't you talk about that just a little bit? Well, I mean, I don't have a deep understanding of errorless learning, but um, my impression of it is that you're setting the dog up to always win. There's a lot of reinforcement and you're you're just helping the dog succeed right out of the gate. And every time you start to incorporate a distraction, you're rewarding the dog so frequently that they don't care about the distraction. They're more into, it's more rewarding for them to stay on the bed, using that as an example, than to bother with the person that's knocking on the door, coming in the house, ringing the doorbell, food that fell on the floor. They don't care about any of that because staying on the bed is so rewarding. And this is the foundation that you've created for that dog. And, um, you know, I was saying to, to Jess on the way over in the car that I can see how that could work, but very contextually, and everything is contextual with dogs. So no matter how you train them in the kitchen, it typically won't transfer to out in the yard. You need to now retrain it to a certain extent out in the yard. Well, if you're doing all of this, you know, rapid reinforcement training uh, uh, to, to avoid any errors, you need to make sure the dog likes the cookies out in the yard as, as, or whatever that reward is, no matter where they are. And it's, it's, I can see it being extremely labor intensive. And um, whereas the way I train, I think, is more realistic as far as getting to a, a point of having a usable behavior within a time frame that people can actually say, okay, I, I can do this. And yeah. I'm thinking a couple of weeks, yeah. not several months. Yeah. And it depends. I mean, a lot of this errorless learning talk, you know, there's some very good like clinical, um, mechanical reinforcement-based trainers that can really make this happen in a great way. The lay person, the average dog-owning person necessarily isn't that equipped for that. And most people, like Scott's saying, want to see results in a more, you know, expedient amount of time. So for us, um, it's supposed to minimize the stress for the dog, this errorless learning. We have seen the dog's stress go down by understanding its job as quickly as possible. So all of this stuff that we're going to discuss here today, I'm not saying do your first session of sit and then, you know, throw a bunch of kibble on the ground that very first session so the dog understands that. You're going to build these behaviors. You're going to make sure the dog understands these behaviors, but then you're going to introduce distraction. You're going to welcome failure so the dog can further cement, further solidify what is his actual job is, if that makes sense. So for instance, let's start with just sitting down since I made that as, you know, uh, a moment. So your sit, of course, like I teach my dogs that a sit, you don't want to come forward with a lure. Same thing with a down. You don't want to come forward with a food lure. If your dog does take a lure, that's fine. You can just place a cookie on the ground or something else. You can use food in those contexts. That's great. One thing that you may not think of and something that uh, actually caught my dog off guard at a seminar that I just recently did is like getting on the ground and using yourself as a distraction, right? So like now your dog is in a sit or in a down and, you know, you get on the ground and I was just teaching another 
dog at the seminar to do a backstall, but I think my dog just remembers like the find me position from when she was young. And she just like flew off her bed and like came underneath to my mouth and was like, oh my gosh, here you are. But you being a distraction, you laying on the ground and being like, oh, hi, sweetie. And you trying to create this like pull for the dog to break its position. These are all things that are welcoming failure. You can control this failure. The dog isn't going to get in a situation where it's compromised or injured if it breaks the position. And it depends on how you train. It depends on how you communicate with your dog. But you can just very simply take the dog's collar at that point, bring them back, reposition them, maybe not be as exciting, but welcome failure in your stationary positions. Because then when you go out into the real world, you ask the dog to sit when geese fly by or, you know, in an intersection when cars are going by or when a stroller's passing or maybe another dog's passing, whatever your dog's triggers are, they're understanding how to work through these positional behaviors with distraction because of how you've taught it on the front end. And it's really, really important that when something looks good, you start to say, okay, how can I break it to you know, increase the layers of understanding. That's how the dogs really learn, really get solidified with their training and it can transfer to the real world. And that's our main goal up here is to help you guys get your dogs out into the real world and be able to functionally and enjoy them. And the dogs are having fun as well. They're able to experience life. They're not just stuck in a kitchen training. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the difference between the errorless learning and what we're talking about here, if you have your, you're training your own puppy and you want to pursue whatever dream of training it is, uh, whatever methodology, you have all the time in the world to work with this puppy. And chances are, if you know what you're doing or you're getting the right help, regardless of what uh, avenue you go down, you're going to have success because time isn't of the essence. You're taking your time and you're setting your puppy up for success. The people that I deal with, usually there's already problems have started. So now we got to get in and help these people have some success in a reasonable time frame and that's why and even this thing this little phrase about welcoming failure is really just another term for proofing proofing yeah. behavior and the proofing of a behavior i tell everyone it's limited by your own imagination i come in and i do the same six things with every dog you know they're on a bed i throw food on the ground uh they learn not to go for the food now i get to the end of the leash i kneel down like jess said i go low to the ground which typically will invite them to come off the bed so I do half a dozen things, with, and then before I get away from the dog, where we're introducing the auditory, you know, doorbells and all that kind of stuff. But it really is limited by your own imagination. But I would definitely, after you've gone through some basic things, start to incorporate the actual biggest distractions for this dog, which could be a doorbell. It could be getting the dog's bag of food. The dog hears that yeah. crunching of the bag, and they're like, they just make up, they bolt for the kitchen wherever you are with that bag of food. Yeah. And um, what I think of with my distractions will be totally different than what you come up with. But what is important is that if the dog is failing repeatedly, it's too much too fast. Yeah. And that's right. I, in my mind, when I'm working with a dog, if they get off the bed, if it's a very food motivated lab, for example, and I toss a treat on the floor and they just, boom, they're, on the, they're going for the food. I want to make sure they don't eat the food and help them, get, help them get back on the bed. But I need to dumb it way down because yeah. they're not even thinking. They're just reacting immediately. And that could be for anything where they're just getting reactive. You need to dumb it down and back it up so that they can actually learn uh, instead of just failing, failing, failing. And then you thinking, well, this doesn't work. Yeah. You know, we got to do something else. Yeah, completely. And in the same vein, since we were discussing the vet bed, a lot of people say that the doorbell is a trigger. Scott and I are huge proponents of, 
You know, text your spouse when they get home. Text your best friend when she's coming over for dinner. Text your mom when she's dropping by and say, when you come over, act like a stranger. Like legitimately, my dog is going to be practicing this. Ring the doorbell. Work through it in times when you don't need to work through it because the UPS truck is there and you actually need to answer the door or, you know, there's an urgency of getting out. Like plan for these things so you're training for your biggest distractions at a time when, you know, everyone can be successful. Another um, reason I like this over the uh, errorless learning, one of the things that they say is a huge benefit is that there's no frustration. The dog doesn't get frustrated. I want the dog to learn to work through some frustration, learn some patience, start to problem solve a bit. Think about, oh, should I, you know, should I make this choice or not make this choice? And I can see the wheels turning in the yeah. dog's head really quick. They're like, they see it. They look at it and they go, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to hold my ground. And immediately I'm rewarding them on the bed for holding their ground. Yeah. You know, but they're making these choices and you can see them in their, their physical demeanor thinking about, oh, I'd like to do that. No, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Working nice. through frustration tolerance in your training is a big one and it does help you in the long run. All right. We're going to go to break super quick. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about welcoming failure. Want to keep up with all the latest from the Quirky Dog Podcast like me and Murphy here? then make sure you head on over to the YouTube channel and subscribe. Or if you prefer to listen to the madness, go on over to iTunes or Spotify and follow the Quirky Dog Podcast. And hey, while you're there, leave a rating and review and let them know what you think of the show. Until then, keep it quirky. Okay, I want to mention um, what Scott had talked about with just rehearsing failure over and over and over again um, real quick also. And then sometimes that I wouldn't welcome failure in case you guys are going to peace out here quick after break, just so we can hash that out and you understand. So a pretty common thing in dog training is like an 80% success rule, right? So if your dog is successful 100% of the time, you're probably making things too easy. If your dog is failing more than 20% of the time, maybe you're making things more difficult than they should be too early on in the learning phase. Just like Scott's talking about, the lab goes for the food over and over and over again. So another time or instance or a few instances that I would not be putting your dog in this situation of welcoming failure is fear. So um, if your dog has an extreme phobia of trains, let's say, I'm not telling you now to go to the train tracks every time the train passes every morning and have your dog right there experiencing fear to that degree. That is not welcoming failure. That is not a safe situation to put your dog in. That isn't the type of proofing we're talking about. Another instance that I would talk about is aggression. I would never want you to sit there and welcome failure, whether it be aggression towards people or other dogs or anything else, so you can teach your dog a lesson or so you can, you know, see what might happen. That's a common phrase that people say to Scott sometimes when he comes over. Oh, I just didn't have a leash on him. I just wanted to see what would happen. And more often than not, Scott has good dog sense and everything else. But anytime there's actual aggression or a chance for there to be aggression, you're definitely going to manage. You want to manage with a leash, with a muzzle, with something else. There's no reason to rehearse aggressive episodes where the dog is actually reaching out and lashing out and biting someone or anything else. And then the third one that I would mention that I wouldn't be welcoming failure a lot is if it has to do with safety. So if you're going to sit there and you're going to be like, oh, I want to see if I can, you know, proof my dog sit stay on, you know, this second floor balcony while they're replacing the railings and you go down and you're two floors below. Like, no, that is not smart. That is not good proofing. That is not anything awesome. You know, you're not going to be training near high traffic roads just for, you know, shits and giggles and the TikTok videos. So when it comes to safety, when it comes to extreme fear, when it comes to aggression, I wouldn't welcome failure. But in most of your day to day, you know, different training drills, different behaviors that you train, welcoming failure will help you overall 100% from where I stand. Yeah. And another one, you talk about safety, I, um, the off-leash recall. 
Yeah. So we take dogs in quite often for two, three, four weeks. And one of the things people want is an off-leash recall. And so we're doing a lot of long line work. And then we're taking them to different locations with the long line. And what we're looking for is that that long line is really not needed. It's there for safety, but we don't need to direct them back to us. They're coming when we call them. When we get to the point where we do want to take them off leash before they go home, we will usually go to a tennis court or an enclosed area so that worst case scenario, that dog just runs for the opposite corner of where we are. Um, we can just go round them up. Even if it, took, if it took us a half hour, to, it's never happened. But if it took a long period of time to get this, to corral this dog in the tennis court, they're not loose running through yeah. the neighborhood, God forbid, running into traffic somewhere. Yeah, that is know? another good place that safety comes up. All right, let's talk about some more concrete examples for ways that you may see this in your day-to-day life. So if you crate your dog, hopefully you do, if you've been listening for long enough at this point, if you have rules for the dog coming out of the crate, whereas like the, the, the plane of the crate door is like a way that you kind of create an automatic stay, there are two ways that I see that happen. And one is that someone opens the door with, you know, complete confidence. They can take a few steps back. They can throw a tennis ball. Their dog's very clear in their job. And the other one is like the person saying, wait, sit, get back, whatever they're saying before they even go to reach for the door. Okay. And really the dog is not, the dog is one completely in the driver's seat when you're just begging them to do this. And two, you don't have real reliability with that behavior. So welcome failure with the plane of your crate. That is a great one. A good one would be if, you know, your kids just come home from school or somebody just come home, comes home from school, try the plane of the crate in that excitement. You know what I mean? You don't have to have somebody get in front of the crate and call the dog out. But these times when the dog is like so excited, so drivey, so ready to rock, maybe you're going for your walk. So you get your harness or your collar or whatever you walk your dog on and your leash and you bring it over to the crate and you go to open the door. Can they stay within the plane of the crate then? The plane of the crate having strong criteria has saved our asses in so many different ways, namely with just opening the car door. If your dog is loose in the car for some reason and not in a crate, if you open the car door and you transfer the plane of the crate to the plane of the car, like we can open the door, go and get our mail and, you know, be in busy areas and we're not just thinking our dogs are going to fly out. So proof the plane of your crate. That is a really important one. And it really helps start that working relationship, right? It's either first thing in the morning where you're first seeing your dog, maybe your dog slept in a crate overnight and you're kind of like setting the tone for the day, or it's before a training session. Like you're letting your dog out of the crate. That's your first interaction. How does that look? And that will sometimes foretell how your training session is going to look. And I would say that welcoming failure is not setting your dog up for failure. And it sounds kind of almost the same, but being consistent is such a huge thing. And I tell my clients all the time, if you don't have time to train, or to follow up, or to police the dog's behavior. Just don't let them do anything. Just let them be free. Let them be free. And if they jump on the couch, they jumped on the couch. Uh, You know, if they jumped on someone, just calmly go take them, and uh, you don't have to jump all over their shit. But um, welcoming failure is, again, having a plan for if the dog makes a poor choice, how am I going to rectify this and help the dog learn that's not what I want. That's really what we're talking about here. To further solidify what the future behavior is going to look like. So you do have reliability, you guys. We have dogs so we can enjoy them, so we can rely on them, so they can rely on us. They understand that there'll be some consistency from us. All right, loose leash walking. This is a huge one. Um, Whether you've just been working your loose leash walking from a very basic level, you still have food in your dog's face, anything else, 
Loose leash walking and welcoming failure is like our A number one thing that happens. So I can't tell you how many times I've heard my husband or me say to someone who we're training, you know, give the dog more leash, give the dog more leash. When people are just, you know, they have these traffic handle leashes or they're bending down and they have a lot of tension or they're just restraining their dog next to them. Their dog is not learning anything about loose leash walking. It may look good. It may be good for management, but they're not actually learning the nuance of loose leash walking. So give your dog more leash. If the dog wants to jut out ahead, that's fine. Let the dog go out ahead. How do you handle that as a trainer? That is you and your own training program. Some people, like I said, may walk out, take the dog's collar, bring the dog back to their side. Some people may take 10 steps back. Some people may turn the other way. Some people may use leash pressure. I don't care how you communicate it, but let your dog fail. Let your dog float out to the side. Let your dog float out to the front. Let your dog do these things so they understand what they should be doing and what does give them reinforcement. And they're very clear on their task at hand. And I also explain to people when we're doing that loose leash walking, that when we start out doing it, when I start out teaching it, I um, have a very loose criteria. It's just don't pull. It's not healing. The dog, and quite often, if I give people that have a, a history of restraining, 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 if I give them a 10-foot leash and say, let's walk your dog on a 10-foot leash, of course, the local ordinances will say, you need a six-foot leash. But the dogs are so conditioned to pull within that three to four feet of the owner that if they walk with their hand in the end of a 10-foot leash, the dog may go out five feet and then turn around like, hey, what are you doing? Are you coming? Yeah. And if you walk a little slower than normal, they're not pulling on the leash because they're so conditioned with the opposition reflex to pull, pull, pull. Yeah. So, you know, that's, and I tell people also a way of communicating with your dog in that context is to walk slow. And the first thing people say is, well, I'm a fast walker. That's great. He's smart enough to walk slow. I mean, can we actually walk slow for the sake of training our dog right now? And I'm not that sarcastic, but yes, I realize that where a lot of people like to power walk, but we're training. So we're changing everything up to help the dog pay attention to us a little more because they know you're going to power walk and they're going to power walk too. And they're out ahead of you. And subconsciously, half the people are doing it just to keep up with their dog, just to make it look good still. So just be conscious of what you're doing. And like Scott's saying, intentionally walk slow, intentionally change, you know, go for frequent sits and intentionally change direction. Make sure the dog is with you. So you actually have loose leash walking that can be taken to a public sidewalk, to a public park, to an actual city. You actually have a behavior that you can work with and you're not just like trying to make it look good just for the sake of the image of it. We actually want you to have the real world loose leash walking. All right. Another one is jumping. Um, so even in How to Calm Your Canine, we have an exercise where the dog is tethered and somebody's just walking into the you know six foot parameter of that tether and then walking out when the dog fails. We're welcoming the jumping, let the dog jump, let the dog jump, let the behavior extinguish. And then finally, when the dog puts the bomb on the ground and then they can get a cookie, the person can get close enough, allow for some of these things to happen and then come up with a plan of, okay, how can we make this so that the dog understands what's going on? And the same thing then can go with the dog dragging a leash around the house. You know, somebody comes over, the dog drags a leash around the house. They're starting to learn, oh, if I sit in front of the person, I can get cookies. If I jump, it doesn't get me anything. The person's going to go away. I'm going to get put away, whatever else. So welcome failure and jumping also. And don't just be pushing the dog to the ground and saying off, 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 off. All of that physical connection, I'm sure you've heard us say it before, makes dogs more needy, makes dogs want to come more often. It kind of taps into their opposition reflex, so be careful of those things. Yeah, and with the jumping, I would, again, trying to set the dog up for a what I would call a controlled failure. 
is when they do jump on somebody, that person is not rewarding the dog, whether it's with praise, as Jeff said, pushing them down, all these things that the dog finds rewarding. So that being said, when you're teaching a dog not to jump, you want to do it with friends or family that are willing to take some direction. They come in, the dog jumps on them, they don't touch the dog, they go back outside, let's do this again, and give you some opportunities to do a little bit of training. Yeah. If you have someone coming over to give you an estimate on some contracting work in your house, that's not the person to kind of test this out yeah. and see what happens. Because <laughs> yeah. chances are, they're going to reward the jumping. Yeah. They just want to get in and get the job done. And they might like dogs yeah. and they have no idea that you don't want the dog to jump. And they jump and say, hey boy, how you doing? And they yeah. give him a bunch of love and the dog's like, this was great. He's my new buddy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good one. All right. I want to talk about recalls. So Scott talked about come on called as it relates to safety and you know, not letting the dog get out of your sight and everything else. People don't proof their recalls frequently at all. And I don't get that. I don't know if your foundation is a restrained recall where, you know, you're holding your dog and you're running away and everything else. That's awesome. If people are doing the sit, stay, and then call the dog, we're pretty anti that. We're pretty vocal about being anti that. But if that's how you're training your recall, these are all very sterile contextual ways that the dog is saying the recall, right? So most frequently, the way you're going to need a recall is, the dog maybe ran out the door after something. The dog's maybe chasing some sort of deer. The dog maybe is, you know, really into some sort of food, whether it be horse turds or something else. They're just really engaged. You need to call them back. So be conscious of incorporating and welcoming failure into your recall. Again, controlled failure. But so often when we're training pet dogs and even our own dogs, we'll have food in our hand. Scott will sometimes be feeding the dog the food that's in the hand. And then when I call, if the dog still is engaged in that food, he can close the hand or he can withdraw the food. Use food as a distraction. Use other people as a distraction. Use chase as a distraction. Just because the dog is chasing after a toy or chasing after another dog or chasing after a person running does not mean that they should not peel off of that to come back to you. So the more that you proof your recall and the more that you really welcome failure within your recall in the training stages and then even readdress that as time goes on. Recall is one that you really want to consistently be re-upping how you're training it, how you're introducing distractions to it, how you're creating clarity with it, the more reliable recall you'll have. I don't know how else to say it. And so frequently people are just like, oh yeah, he comes. And you know, all of a sudden you'll see them walk across the yard, put the dog in a sit, put the dog in the stay, walk 20 feet away, call the dog, give the dog a cookie. That's not real life. That's not what things are going to look like when you actually need to call your dog. So be very conscious of that. Yeah, and if your dogs love other dogs and you like to go to the dog park and your dog likes to burn off energy by playing, play bowing and running around the dog park, that's fine if you've had no negative experiences and you have a dog park where it's pretty consistent, the same people all the time. Whatever the situation is, that's your business. But you should be able to call your dog out of that play. And the reason that to me that's so important is because when a dog fight does break out, and it will... You need, that's like a magnet. When a dog fight breaks out, a lot of dogs start running into that, that fight. What the, what's going on? And it can turn into a big, big fight and a lot of crap going on. And, uh, that's a time when you want to be able to call your dog out of that. You know, you see shit's falling apart. You call your dog, put a leash on him, get out of there. Yeah. And if you can't call your dog out of play, it's going to be almost impossible when things really start heating up in a dog park. 
Yeah. And people are screaming, dogs are growling and barking, all that stuff. And some tidbits to work through that. One thing that we frequently say is, you know, if you have access to another dog who has great obedience, when you call the dog, make sure you can stabilize that dog. If you don't have access to another dog who will down at a distance and stop playing and everything else, then at least have the other dog on a leash. At least have the other dog controlled so that they can't just keep bounding through the fields together and everything else. But that is a good example of recall training and proofing also is calling the dogs away from other dogs. Reactivity. I want to address this super quickly. So frequently you will hear that if your dog is reactive, then you need to walk during more low traffic times. You need to, you know, stay away from busier situations and everything else. Stay in your backyard a lot of times. Yes, I would, I would encourage you guys and we would encourage you guys to lean into that. I'm not saying to have your dog go out and look like Cujo everywhere, every place they go. But start using different tools, start using different trainers, start using different methods, start incorporating different things. Maybe if you can introduce a muzzle to your dog, your dog will be more inhibited on a muzzle than to be reactive. Maybe a gentle leader, if you can do that with a professional trainer and your dog has some foundation of loose leash walking, that might help you. Come up with a tool that will work so you can go out in the real world and start addressing the dog being crazy reactive for whatever reason it is so they can actually start to live a life. Because the more that you close their world down and separate them from all this stimuli, the less the less soon you're going to be able to go out and enjoy your dog. The smaller the dog's yeah, world Yeah, and that's why we get dogs, is to enjoy them. And dogs like to go out and about and be out in the world. They like to enjoy life. So be conscious of even with reactivity. Welcome failure there. See when it popped up. Have a plan to deal with it and start addressing it. Don't just shy away from it. Don't freak out about it. And more than anything else with that, get yourself in a headspace that you're not going to be you know, overly concerned about it. You're not projecting anything onto the dog. You start to be feeling comfortable in your own right and everything else. So be conscious of that and think about that. Yeah. One of the big distractions I remember when I had my group classes going was skateboards. There were certain dogs that skateboards just really drive them crazy. And we'd have skateboards at at the group classes all the time. And if you don't have someone that can actually ride a skateboard, you know, someone just rolling it across the, the parking lot really quick. And uh, what I've done with my private classes is gone to a skateboard park, and most of them are even fenced. But it's just like a dog park where we can be across the street. They can hear it. They can see it. But it's not so intense that they can't work yeah. through it. And you can start closing the gap. I went right into a dog park. A skate park? In, uh, a skate park in Dover with a dog that was had problems with it. And... um but we didn't start in the in yeah. the skate park, you know? Yeah, you're building up to all of these things. Um, I want to just kind of brainwash you guys super quick in relation to if you're listening and thinking like, oh, well, failure just doesn't make a lot of sense as it relates to dog sports. And then we'll just talk about people real briefly. So like if you have a dog, if you know about fly ball where the dog runs down the lanes and hits the box and turns back down <laughs> the lanes, one common issue that you'll see with fly ball sometimes is the dog wants to chase another dog. So it's way more motivating to chase the dog in the next lane or, you know, four lanes over if it's just a singles tournament than actually run to get the ball. Now, there are different ways that you're going to work through that and build more value to the ball and build more value to go back to the handler and everything else. But then you're also going to be running alongside other dogs. So maybe you put a gate up in between. So, you know, you just extend a ring gate up so they can see the dog, but they can't actually have access to the dog. This is a common thing in dog sports where we welcome failure. Dock dog training. Some venues, you can't have anyone holding your dog. You actually have to have your dog in a sit-stay. You're not just banking on the fact that your dog is going to hold the sit-stay at a great national event, at a big event, and hoping that that'll be for the best. You're proofing that sit-stay on the dock. You're welcoming failure. So you can go back and replace the dog and teach the dog how clear its job should be and what they're actually doing. 
Agility. Tunnel sucking is a huge one. Dogs love tunnels. Like, oh, this is so great. This is so great. Most of the top agility trainers now are actually like, come on, go ahead. Suck into the tunnel. Suck into the tunnel. Do what you want. And having the dog go when you either release them or tell them to go in the tunnel or something else. They're welcoming the failure of, oh, there's a tunnel there. And they're not, one, they can't get to that point where they can block the tunnel because their dogs are so blazing fast. But they're really teaching the dog the clarity and the understanding of like, if you want to run through the tunnel, that's fine. But there's rules to the tunnel. You're going to go to this side. You're going to go to that side. You're going to peel off if I want you to. They're teaching a lot of understanding by welcoming failure early on. Nose work is a great one, you guys. You're going for the odor. Very early on in nose work, you're putting containers of food out where the dogs can have olfactory access, but they can't actually go in and eat. You're welcoming failure in that context. You want to go and sniff that all day long? That's fine, but the value is going to be when you find the odor. So just think of these things if you're like, oh, pet dog training, welcoming failure. Why would I do that? If you know anything about dog sports, it comes up frequently. We're doing these things frequently to help the dog's layers of understanding be as clear as they can for their job. And this is just kind of how life works in a lot of ways. Yeah. One thing about the dog sports that I really appreciate uh, is that by the, you know, when people are doing things, jumps, all these different things quite often. um, And I don't know if you call it good training or not training, but we would have the reward item out in the field for the dog. So if they decided, or for whatever reason, they they didn't go through the jump or over the jump or through the tunnel, but just wanted to go straight for the toy, uh, most people had a down. They could say down, the dog would down, you restart them again. So that they're not just running, grabbing their toy, and then running all over the field with it. Yeah, and even we've advanced to using the bird dog launcher, whatever that dog right, product so that was, the ball launcher. So like, it. Yeah, it's getting released to when the dog is successful and everything else. So yes, that's another thing. Just like Scott was saying earlier about people and coming over and jumping and don't give the dogs access to food if it comes off the bed. Don't allow people to get rewarded by whatever you know is walking into their house. Don't allow people to get, don't allow dogs to get their toy if they've failed, you know, when you're welcoming failure, you want it to be controlled in that sense. And I just want to end in talking about, like, we have failure as a society, you guys. Like, there are kids that want to get into certain colleges. They don't get in. There are people that, you know, want to start certain businesses. They fail. Even, I feel like I refer to country songs all the time on this show, but, like, the song, you know, You're Almost Maybe is, like, you know, you have all these relationships that failed that, you know, you thought were going to be great to find the relationship that you're supposed to be in. Life is full of failure and failure leads us to success and failure leads us to our path. So when we start really being concerned about the dogs failing and just setting the dogs up for success and just making everything, you know, butterflies and rainbows for the dogs, is that really real life? Failure is a part of life. It is how we function. You don't not go to your job for three weeks and still have a job on the fourth week. There are different consequences in life and why we do certain things is humans. And I think that that transfers more to the dogs than people are willing to recognize sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, And uh, I mean, even, I mean, it's one thing for kids to not do their work in high school and then not get into college, but there's kids that are working their asses off that are getting, you know, straight A's all through high school that still are not getting into the colleges that they're hoping to get into. It's like, That life isn't always fair, you know? Yeah. And it, and those are the learning lessons that have you grow resilience. They help you build frustration tolerance. They help mold your character. And they help you to get to the path of success. Again, failure is the path to success. That's what every big influencer, every big you know successful person in the world will tell you. It's the same with dogs. So when you're concerned about the dog failing and you don't want the dog to fail because of X, Y, Z reason, consider why that is. And think of if you start leaning into failure more, maybe you're going to have more success. Maybe it's going to be easier on your dog in the long run, less stressful for both of you. Yeah. Okay. The outcome is just that your dog winds up having a lot more freedom 
being part of all kinds of social settings and having a great life. Yeah, we want the best. We want want the the best life for you and for your dogs. All right, you guys, thank you so much for joining us this week. Hope that we made you think a little bit differently in terms of welcoming failure. And in the meantime, keep it quirky. (laughs) Bye, guys. Have a good one. Take care. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.